Hello everyone, my name is Sebastian Valancourt, and welcome to the second episode of Crisis Watch Kingston. In today's episode, we're going to be continuing our look into the housing crisis by pivoting somewhat away from the big picture to focus specifically on homelessness, something we started to touch on a little bit in last month's episode. And as I mentioned then, today we'll be talking with Pav Navarma, the president and CEO of United Way for Kingston, Frontenac, Lennox, and Addington, about a report they published recently called The Point in Time Count for 2021. I talked briefly about this report last month, and in a few minutes you'll be hearing all about it from Pavna herself, but as a quick refresher, this document, which is available for anyone to read over on United Way's website, is a collection of data which attempts to outline what the homeless population in Kingston looks like on a given night, providing data ranging from the gender and racial identities of those living on the streets, as well as looking at how often and for how long people are without a home. As you may remember, the report gathered that there are approximately 207 individuals in Kingston who are currently homeless. And I say approximately, as United Way admits, especially with the ongoing pandemic, that their methods aren't perfect. They aren't able to get to everyone. And with homelessness on the rise, and this data having been gathered in April of this year, realistically that number is probably closer to 230 or so. But this month's episode isn't going to be focusing so much on the number of people experiencing homelessness, but on who those people are. Something I've realized from doing the research for this show is that Kingston is a truly unique case when it comes to homelessness. Not just because homelessness seems to be more widespread here than in similar cities. To use the example of Windsor, another university town which in 2018 identified 197 individuals experiencing homelessness in a city of 235,000. Compare that to 152 people identified in Kingston in 2018 with a population of 130,000. If you were to take Windsor as the average, we should be looking at closer to 100 people, not the 230 or so I just mentioned. But again, we're not just talking about pure numbers today. Kingston also stands out as a place where women, indigenous people, and trans youth are all disproportionately affected by homelessness and housing insecurity. And we'll get into the specific data that demonstrates this fact with Pavna shortly. But before I do, I also want to talk about what the rest of this episode is going to be, and why it's not quite what I had originally planned. Last month, I expressed that it was my hope to be able to go down to the Integrated Care Hub, a shelter and healthcare facility here in Kingston that deals especially with those on the streets living with addictions, to talk to some of the folks staying there. I was not able to do this, because unfortunately, the hub was and is dealing with a pretty serious outbreak of COVID-19. This pandemic has been absolutely devastating for countless communities across the country, but we here in Kingston have been fairly lucky, all things considered. There were a few times when active cases numbers hit the triple digits, but these spikes were all relatively short-lived. At the time I'm recording this episode, COVID cases are rapidly approaching the 300 mark, and things are twice as bad as they have ever been here with no sign of slowing down. And this is despite very encouraging vaccination numbers. And, of course, as with many other crises, it's our city's most vulnerable that are hit the hardest. This in no way means I've cancelled my plans to talk with some of the folks over at the Hub, but it does mean that for the safety of all those involved, I will have to postpone those interviews. Hopefully only until next month when it'll be safer to visit. Instead, today I'll be taking some time to talk about the situation over at the Hub and some of the recent decisions made by City Council to address this and other matters affecting the homeless community here. And to make sure this episode isn't all about numbers and statistics, I'll be including some highlights from a series of interviews I conducted earlier this year with some folks living in encampments around the cities about their experiences because it is very, very important to remember that these aren't numbers on a spreadsheet that we are talking about. These are real people with real lives, and their voices are the ones that we should truly be highlighting in any conversation on this subject. Not that data and statistics aren't important. They certainly are. But they're important because having this information about who is really being affected is a big part about how we can make sure that the solutions we come up with are actually going to be addressing their needs as individuals. So, to talk more about everything I've just mentioned and more, please enjoy these highlights from my recent conversation with the President and CEO of United Way for KFLNA.
Pavna Varma. I'm the president and CEO of the United Way of Kingston, Frontenac, Lennox, and Addington. Um, the United Way is, is quite an amazing uh, community-owned organization. So we, as the United Way, raise funds in the community, and then we invest them in programs that support people who are in vulnerable circumstances. So it's very volunteer-led and staff-driven. So we have thousands of volunteers who help raise funds, and we have thousands of volunteers who uh, invest these funds. We look at immediate needs, like people who need shelter, food, clothing, but we also look at long-term root cause issues. How can we prevent some of the issues we're seeing in our community? So it's it's, it's really about collaboration, working with community partners, working with government, working with everyone or anyone who wants to be involved and um, making sure that we work together on local solutions. And can you tell us a little bit about what the point in time count is and a little bit of the history of that report? Sure. So the point in time count is a count that's done usually every two years in urban and rural areas. The United Way in Kingston and area has been doing this point in time count um, since 2016, um, it's an urban point in time count. The city of Kingston does the enumeration for the rural area at Frontenac and uh, Lennox and Addington County does the enumeration for the rural area there. So we just do the urban point in time count. And the point in time count really gives us a snapshot. It gives us an idea of trends. It gives us the minimum number of people we know are homeless. And uh, the surveys are uh, voluntary. And through the surveys, we get a sense of who's homeless, uh, what the, how long they've been homeless, a number of other demographics. And that helps policymakers and funders and agencies adapt programs, uh, create new programs, support the needs. So it really gives us a sense of what the needs are of a community related to homelessness. Right. Could you tell us a little bit about kind of your approach to, to gathering this data. Um, you've mentioned uh, your kind of volunteer network and a community kind of focus approach. So where does that kind of, or how does that manifest itself when, when gathering this information? That's a great question. We actually have um, in, in regular years, pre-pandemic, we would do this with um, lots of volunteers and agency partners who would then uh, go in pairs. Um, they would get sections of the city that they would, you know, walk, um, and stop anyone and ask them if they had a place to sleep that night and if they were comfortable completing a survey. Uh, obviously with the pandemic that changed. So this year, uh, firstly, we weren't able to do it in 2020, but in 2021, we worked with our agency partners. So they uh, used their time to reach out. They, uh, they, we have street outreach coordinators, we have shelter providers, we have people who work uh, with people who are homeless, and they give, they helped us deliver the surveys. So that's how we adapted this year. Uh, but it, and then our staff take the data and analyze it and put it into this report. Great. Um, so now to kind of talk a little bit about the the data itself, um, the report kind of outlines a few key findings. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe highlight some of those findings and, and talk about if there's any kind of information um, that came up in this, specifically the 2021 report that maybe caught your attention that you'd like to kind of flag for people. Not very surprisingly, uh, we did see an increase in the number of people who identified as homeless. And this was in spite of, of us not having volunteers going to every corner of the city. Um, so we may have missed a few, but we still know that we have uh, 207 people who were homeless in April, the night we did this, um, of which uh, 134 of them were absolutely homeless. So they actually did not have uh, a place to stay that night or they were in a shelter. Um, uh, this was an increase over the previous uh, point in time survey done in 2018, where we had 152 people who were homeless. A certain increase, not a surprise. Uh, we all have seen, um, you know, the impact of COVID uh, on a number of people, especially the most vulnerable. The other thing that we noticed was there were more people who, um, and again, this just gives us data, doesn't actually get into why or how, but we did notice that the number of people who were surveyed who identified as Indigenous was higher. So it was 23% the previous survey, and this time it was 30%. Now that could be people are more comfortable identifying, or it could be that there is an increase. Um, one of the positives that we saw was a decline in the number of women who 
were homeless. So in the past, the percentage of women who were homeless was 50%, which is alarmingly high. It's gone down to 40%, which is still high, but it's not as alarming. It is alarming, but it's not as high as the previous point in time count. Um, that could be a number of factors though. It could be a lot of women choosing to stay in unsafe conditions because they don't wanna be homeless or it could be so many different factors. So again, the point in time count doesn't actually tell us why, it just gives us the, the data. We'll definitely come back to some of the things you, you mentioned there. Um, but one thing I kind of want to, to talk about a bit for the benefit of our listeners is when you say absolute homelessness versus homelessness, where kind of is that line and, and what defines absolute homelessness? Um, so some people are living in transitional time limited um, spaces and that's different because they at least have a space they can go back to night after night for even though it's a limited period of time. Whereas the absolutely homeless, they either are street involved or they are in a shelter, which is very temporary, or they actually, um, you know, just they don't know where they're going to sleep that night. I want to talk a little bit about the the amount of time that people are are spending uh, homeless or spending on the streets within a kind of given year. Um, yeah. So the increase in in the number of people who are homeless, you you mentioned that number two hundred and seven coming up from one hundred and fifty two. The number of people experiencing absolute homelessness seems to have have gone up uh, even more. Um, and so I w- was wondering if you kind of maybe have noticed any trends in are people spending longer periods of time homeless as opposed to multiple shorter periods of time? Is that a trend you've, you've tend to see? Well, we certainly don't know the number of days people have the average length of stay uh, or length of time people are homeless is, is definitely higher than it was three years ago. So in 2018, it was about 188 days. It's now 230 days, which is quite a bit higher. Uh, but we also know that we have more people who are on the streets. And again, while the point in time count doesn't tell us why, um, we also know that, um, you know, before the pandemic, people were may have been able to couch surf, whereas with health and safety restrictions, maybe they weren't welcome anymore. We've, we've definitely seen an increase in addictions and mental health, mental illness, really. And so that certainly causes homelessness. People who have a home are not able to stay housed many times, and then they're out on the streets. So... We definitely know some of the factors that are going into it. And the point in time kind of reaffirms some of the, the data and some of the anecdotal pieces that we know. Right. Um, of course, as, as you've mentioned, the, the pandemic has definitely been a, a major factor in, in the worsening of, of the housing crisis and, and homelessness uh, in particular. Though you did, and again, you've, you've said that the point in time count isn't about getting into the reasons of, of why all of this is, it's it's more about collecting the data, but you, you talked about some of these kind of anecdotal things. Would you be interested in talking a little bit about what some of the factors, maybe aside from the pandemic, pandemic are that might be making these, these issues worse here in Kingston? Certainly. Um, you know, it could be pandemic related or it could be otherwise, but we're, our agencies are seeing a significant increase in the number of people and the 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 amount of substance use. Um, Certainly very addictive substances uh, can lead to severe um, issues um, emotionally and physically. And so we know that a number of behavioral issues are due to people, to the addictions that some people may have. We also know that mental illness, um, the integrated care hub, which serves people who are on the streets who, you know, usually have um, addictions and mental health, they had just in the, in, during the pandemic, they, they've had 400 naloxone interventions. Now, every time someone goes through that, there is some damage, there is physical and mental and emotional damage. So, you know, it just kind of, the, the issues are just escalating with people who don't have a stable place to live. Um, and that's a concern. Um, you know, just how do we get them? And I think our community is trying its best. We have this integrated care hub is a tremendous partnership between um, healthcare and social service workers. We haven't seen that kind, we haven't been able to do that kind of work before. But a number of people who are homeless, we have learned again, anecdotally uh, through our agencies, um, they have brain injury, um, a large number in Toronto has done a study on this. Uh, they have a significant amount of um, head injuries due to um, falls or, or abuse or violence. Um, 
So there are some significant issues. A doctor, street psychiatrist was telling us that some of the clients that he sees have six different diagnoses going on, health and mental health and uh, addictions and, and, and. So we've got a lot of people with a lot of um, issues that really need to be, um, need to have their situation and their um, support customized because everyone's path to homelessness is unique and different. And the reasons people become homeless are so unique. Uh, the one thing we know with everyone who's homeless, there's some trauma in the background. So a more trauma-informed approach is the way that this community is, is really looking at things now, which is a huge step uh, ahead of where we've been pre-pandemic. We also have a shortage of beds. We have fewer shelter beds than we had before the pandemic. Uh, because, you know, just because of space and, and con congregate living is not possible the same way due to health restrictions. So now we're looking at fewer shelter beds and where do people go? How do shelters prioritize who gets in? Absolutely. Um, so to kind of uh, talk a little bit about um, kind of some of the differences between 2018's count and and this year's, um, you, you mentioned the the drop from I believe it was fifty five to to forty um, percent in terms of um, the number of people who I identified as women, mm -hmm. with um, the national average kind of sitting at around about a third. Um, do you think there are any reasons why this it seem that women seem to be more risk more at risk in in Kingston specifically? Is this um, is that like an urban center kind of thing, or is this really Kingston that's kind of stands out in this way? Kingston does stand out, and we've been really hoping that maybe Queen's University can take this on as a research project because we'd love to have research verify some of our theories. Uh, what we know is that 95% of women who've been, who are homeless on the streets have been um, abused at a young age. We have one of the highest rates of abuse of young minors uh, in Kingston. It's actually the highest provincially. Uh, we also know that we have a number of, um, there are a number of factors. We have large, uh, we have human trafficking in Kingston. It's very prevalent. Um, a lot of young women um, are trafficked. And so again, while we've got a network of agencies trying to work with, with various uh, stakeholders, uh, it is an issue. And unless we really understand what's causing it, it's hard for us to deal with it. And that's why we're really hoping, and since you're, uh, audience is primarily Queens. We're hoping some researcher will step up and, and help us with this because as a community, we're struggling. To talk a little bit about youth specifically, because that's something you mentioned as well. Mm -hmm. um, so there has been a rise in, in youth home homelessness specifically as well um, that seems to be greater than the, the rise of, of homelessness generally. Um, and to kind of bridge into the next thing I wanted to talk about, while uh, in terms of gender demographics, uh, generally it's about 3% of people who tend to identify as, as transgender or, or non-binary in youths, um, that's 11%. I wanted to know if maybe you could comment a little bit on, on that and why you think uh, so many more uh, queer youths are experiencing homelessness than, than older individuals. So let's start with youth. So one of the, the factors is actually a positive one. We have more shelter beds now than we had pre-pandemic. So in 2018, we had fewer shelter beds just because of uh, the fact that the youth shelter has now been moved into a space for safety reasons. The city has got them a space that actually allows for 19 youth versus the 14 or 15 that they were able to house at Brock Street. So that right away increases the number of youth we're accessing. Um, regarding the, the, the number of transgender youth, we do know that a large number of youth who are homeless uh, are LGBTQ2 spirited. And so that certainly factors in why you would see that. More and more uh, service providers are, are diligent and much more um, able to help youth feel comfortable identifying. So I think that is another factor why uh, you see more numbers. Mm -hmm. We don't know whether it's actually more numbers or it's more youth who are coming out earlier um, and being served uh, as transgender. We do have a transitional house that serves the younger youth, 16 to 19, and many of the youth there we know um, identify as LGBTQ, uh, transgendering. Um, so again, I think having a safe space at a young age uh, will help uh, youth um, identify and also um, uh, seek support. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so, so I also mentioned, sorry, yeah, one no, thing I should also mention is the number one reason youth are homeless, they have told us, is due to family conflict. So again, a lot of, um, you know, it, it, during a pandemic, it's tough for families. Uh, it's tough for youth. We know youth have struggled. They're one of the populations that have been most impacted. Um, so it's, it's you know, you can see that youth are turning to different services to try to, to deal with their mental health and addictions. And, you know, sometimes they become homeless. Really, we need to, to start helping our youth earlier and better um, just to make sure that, you know, they don't end up homeless as a result of having these challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, on the, again, on the kind of topic of mental health, there was a, a part in the report that talked about um, not only does just having a, a pre-existing mental condition maybe make you more likely to end up on the streets, but l- being homeless and experiencing homelessness also worsens um, your your mental state. Um, so um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that kind of the cyclical kind of nature of this and and uh, the options that people have. Yes, I, and I, it, a lot of it is you know. It is true, um, you know, mental health can lead to homelessness, but homelessness will certainly exacerbate your mental health. So even if you you thought you had no challenges before you were homeless, you're certainly going to feel uh, stressed and depressed and anxious all the time. A lot of the youth we talk to worry about their safety all the time. Um, they watch out for each other. They sleep, some, one, some youth told us they sleep on the roof so they can hear anyone coming up to them. So you don't even get a good night's sleep because you're always worrying about your safety and, you know, forget the weather, but, you know, where do I go next? Where am I going to stay safe um, and dry? Um, And so, again, I think um, what we want to do is to make sure we have actually a mobile mental health counselor who can talk to youth because many youth don't identify initially. They don't realize that they have challenges that can probably be addressed. And the Mental health counselor, if they're able to address them right away, that's great. If not, they can refer them to psychiatrists and get them the professional help they need. One Roof is an amazing um, piece that that started as a result of this youth homelessness initiative we have going in Kingston. And One Roof has 27 different agencies serving youth in one space. Because part of the challenge for youth is where do I go? If you're 15 or 16, it's terrifying. Even as an adult, it's terrifying. So can you imagine as a youth, when you don't know where to go. So what we what we have at the hub is 27 amazing agencies who come together and offer different services at different times. And it's up to the youth to, to be guided through what they what the options are and then choose what they what they would like to access. And when they're ready for change, the agencies are there. But that now also has a, a component where they are going to be able to offer some healthcare options, including psychiatry. So we're really looking forward to that because a lot of the youth are not aware that they need uh, psychiatric help. And, and again, helping them early will certainly diminish some of the chronic homelessness that we might have seen otherwise. I wanted to ask you about with the kind of picture that you, you capture of what the homeless population looks like here in Kingston, how representative of the, the population of, of Kingston at, at large do you think the, the homeless population is, and specifically, I want to ask you about the fact that uh, around 30% of, of people experiencing homelessness identify as Indigenous, where only around 3% of the population here in Kingston identifies as Indigenous. It's certainly something that we have to relook because we know that um, there's, a, there's, there's so much, you know, this is the most vulnerable situation you'll ever be in, to be homeless on the streets. Uh, and, and we are now looking at how do we incorporate Indigenous programming, culturally appropriate programming. So One Roof, for example, has very active Indigenous programming that they've just started. We're looking at uh, funding, we are funding, going to fund a, a street outreach worker who's Indigenous who can start to connect. And that doesn't mean they won't serve others, it's just having that connection and, and people feeling, uh, trust is really important in helping people on the journey. And so building trust uh, is easier when you can relate to the person who's, who's, who's helping you. So uh, we're trying to incorporate, uh, you know, the city has funded the indigenous transitional housing that's coming. TP Moza does a great job. So again, expanding some of their programming, but also looking at embedding indigenous programming in, in all the agencies that serve people who are, who are homeless. Point in time count has certainly shown us this. Now it's up to us as a community to act on that and make sure that we are 
uh, recognizing that you know, if 30% of the population are indigenous, we need to have lots more indigenous uh, programming and a lot more culturally sensitive, cultural sensitivity around who we're serving. So you've mentioned uh, the, the point in time count serves as a, a sort of, at the very least, a, a minimum um, of the number of people experiencing homelessness. I was wondering if you could comment on how much of a minimum you think that is. Is this just a small fraction of the people out there or is this, do you think you, you kind of get most of the way there with these counts? So we often match it with the by name list that the city maintains. And the by name list is really about each person who's accessing mm-hmm. uh, services is, 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 you know, is, is viewed as a, as a person. So when we compare the list, we're pretty close. So we know that our point in time count might not be perfect, but we are capturing the bulk. So I would say, you know, maybe there's a 10% slippage um, that we, for people we don't know about. But by and large, I think between the city and the amazing agencies that we work with, I think the point in time count is pretty accurate. Certainly one of the things I'd like people to appreciate is that, you know, homelessness is a wicked problem. There's no one set solution because everyone's journey and path is so different. So I think people... Um, hopefully understand that it takes a whole community. So we've actually brought, our community does a great job with certain segments of the population because we're able to house them. You can see the number of people housed is much higher uh, this time around. So everyone's working together for that. But there's a certain segment of the population that, that, that we can do better. We need to find different solutions. The ones we have are not working. And one of my colleagues said, you know, a lot of the systems were designed in a previous time. Everything has changed since then, and our systems still continue to, to reflect a, a time that doesn't exist anymore. So we as a community have to take a deep look at what we're doing, what we can do differently. And it's going to take our collective brains to come together, including listening to people with lived experience who are the primary source of some of our information, to understand what we can do differently and being brave and courageous enough to admit that something, this is not working. For the most vulnerable. It's working for some segments, but the most vulnerable are falling through the cracks. So I think this pandemic has really highlighted that for us. Um, you know, we always knew there were cracks in the system, but the pandemic has certainly made them into ravines and crevices through which people are falling. And we can't let that happen. So we really need to rally together. And the United Way are, has is coordinating a committee that's made up of just about everyone we can find who wants to talk about this issue. And we're, we're coming together collectively to put our brains together to say, what can we do differently to serve people who are at the most vulnerable situation? Thanks again to Padma for sitting down with me over Zoom to have that conversation. Before we pivot to the next section of this episode, there's one thing I haven't mentioned before on this show that came up in that interview that I think is worth talking about a little more, and that's the matter of human trafficking. In my experience as a student here at Queens, this is something that gets brought up sort of anecdotally from time to time. It's something that people seem to be aware of, but only so far as they've heard rumors or stories about it. Nothing concrete. In the case of homelessness, one only has to take a walk down Princess Street in the morning, and it's hard not to be aware of the problem. It's a very visible issue. One only has to spend a year in student housing to know firsthand the horrible conditions housed people have to endure here. Human trafficking, on the other hand, is something much less out in the open. While today, new articles about the housing crisis seem to get published every week, and that's a good thing, It's much harder to find any real reporting or information in the news about this very serious issue. As Pavna said, this and other reasons as to why women are so disproportionately affected by housing insecurity here in Kingston is an area that requires far more attention than it's being given. And let's not forget about the countless missing and murdered indigenous women across the country, many of whom's fate are completely unknown. For these reasons and more, I urge anyone listening with the platform or the position to shed some more light on these issues, please do. And it is my intention to one day soon dedicate an episode of this show to the unique struggles that women and indigenous women in Kingston and across Canada are facing. Now, as I mentioned at the start of this episode, I'd hope to follow up my conversation with Pavna with a series of interviews with some of the people accessing services at the Integrated Care Hub, but again, 
Due to the ongoing outbreak of COVID-19 at the facility, I was unable to safely conduct these interviews. So instead, I've edited together a few highlights from a series of interviews on the subject of housing and policing I conducted at the start of this year. The clips I've chosen are taken from two interviews, the full versions of which are available on my YouTube channel, that's Sebastian Valancourt. But for the purposes of this episode, the subject shall remain anonymous so as to respect and protect their privacy. And with it being December tomorrow, I wanted to highlight various parts of these conversations that had to do with the conditions people on the streets face in the winter. Here in Canada, the winters can be deadly. And while most of us can relate to feeling like your toes are going to fall off after a particularly chilly walk to class or work, it's really nothing compared to spending all night, every night, all winter, with nothing but a blanket between you and the minus 20 degree weather. The experience is both physically and mentally traumatizing and in cities like toronto they report an average of about two deaths a week in the winter months from the homeless population there so first let's turn it over to our anonymous special guests and after that we'll talk a little about what exactly the city of kingston is planning to do to help meet their needs this winter back of my mind, you know what I mean? Um, just because they've made all kinds of stuff before, the city even saying, you know, oh, you're safe, you're good here, Bell Park, you know what I mean? And then, wham, to collide us like that and just kick us out and, you know, just play with our our homes um, at the drop of a dime. We were there, we were there for almost six months before they knew we even existed, and then somebody with a dog called us in, and that was when the started to roll. <laughs> You're down there probably six months. And then before, even before that, right where the new shelter is, across the road there, yeah. there was used to be a beautiful little inlet behind there where two trees had overlapped like this. And we had our camps tucked in there. And the city came and told us we had to leave there. And we migrated again even farther into the bush. And uh, that's when the dog walker found us. And they you know, saying, you know, the city's telling us we got to move. And uh, yeah. just came off the pedestal just enough to actually look us in the eyes and see that 
we're not parasites, we're not bottom feeders, we're not, we're normal people, we're your neighbors that had either a really rough patch in their life or some have mental health that's coming about that even then so they're not giving proper care for, you know, take those millions and help them. Don't just throw them out to the street because they talk to themselves or they like to dance or they wear weird clothing or they look grubby or, you know, get to know the person underneath it. We're not gonna go away until we get housed and left alone. So, either build us some brand new big old apartments and set us up in there or let us have our own community out of the way where we're not bugging you. We're away from the city. We're not out there causing scenes. We're not doing vandalizing. Actually, criminal activity has cut down because most of us are on watch. We're not just some slum bums hanging out on the street. We, we're actually harder working than most who have jobs because we have to find our next meal. We have to find our next money. We have to find our next shelter. Our clothing, where we're going to bath, where we're going to shower, where we're going to sleep. That's a, from the minute we open our eyes to the minute we close them, we, we're constantly working. because the people in the condos behind us here uh, deem it fit to, to complain about us being here. They don't like the view from their, their window, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. Um, maybe because they pay rent, <laughs> you know. I paid rent as well, then lost my job, and then COVID hit, and here we are. You know, we got people coming from other cities into our housing here, and we're left alone. You know, I'm just, it's, it's sad, really. I've lived 41 years of my life in Kingston. And I can't, I can't find an apartment. So, uh, bylaw, police, police last night as, a, as just wanted to run names, check IDs, uh, let us know that a couple elderly women in the in the building there were, were making complaints. The only other location I know is on Montreal Street. I've seen there. I've known people that have been there. Not really my my cup of tea, I guess you'd say. Well, just the the element, I guess, really the drugs, the the, the theft. You know, that happens here too, the theft, but, you know, no drugs here. You don't know who you're, who you're running into or, or what they're going through, right? It's not to knock on anybody's life, but the, the fewer people for me is the better. Yeah, it said, said felt like 22. Yeah. Ah, a lot of blankets. Thanks to you guys. Yeah. Some propane. Thanks to you guys. I, I was uh, in touch with home-based housing. He put me through uh, the, the housing again, the housing applications. I'm on, on a wait list now, I guess. He comes quite, quite regularly, at least twice a week. I'll check in, bring, bring blankets, socks, some food from Tommy's. Did intake, so it's now being assigned somebody from there to now another person that's going to take my case file. Uh, we were put, also put on, it's like a Canada-wide thing as well, because there is no housing in Kingston. Nobody, nobody wants to live outside, you know? It's not summertime anymore. Camping trip needs an end. <laughs> I had my own company. We sublighted a place, me and my girlfriend, she's not here right now, uh, Collingwood, and the, the student, it was a student that sublet us, it was $2,400 first and last. We paid it, three days later the rental agent showed up and uh, with the police to evict us from the property because he was never informed. We never got our money back, we filled out an application, a week later we're denied. So, I knew this was a bad idea to start, but that's you know, a... It is what it is when it comes down to it. Didn't think we'd be bothering anybody here. Not that we are bothering anybody. You know, we got people coming in, take pictures, set up fake, fake sites on the on on the internet with map, lo, map, map locations to our our tents. It's weird. I've never never experienced this before. There's a gentleman over there. He's got the Rottweiler and his wife, and they come through and he threatens us with the dogs and tries to egg us on to, to threaten him back so he can call the police and it's insane. He came in, they came in with like seven people trying to intimidate us. Just silliness, you know, people should be a little more concerned for their fellow man instead of concerned if, you know, their wallet or entitlement, I guess, you know. It's, it's not like he's any better off than, than what I was. I just, I hit a, I hit a stump in the road, you know.
It takes a while to clear it. With very little help, you know, in the places that, that it's needed. Like you guys help out a, a, a tremendous amount, so without you guys it probably wouldn't still be, you know. Definitely would have froze last night. Ah, well hopefully COVID ends soon, I can get back to work. <laughs> Our clean, yeah, commercial cleaning. Yeah, I do, I do moving now, but again, social distancing and it was the Queen students for a bit, but you know, that's all it's said and done now, I guess. We've had three cancellations, like the day of, <laughs> so very, we're not, we're a little big city. We're not a big city and we're paying big city prices right now for rent. Landlords are making money hand over fist and they're not doing anything to, you know, better the properties, make, make more avail available property. I don't know, it's, we got all these buildings coming up and they're already rented. But to who, you know, like to students, because they can pay six months in advance. Good for them, but at the same time, there should be something for the people that are, that are here already, you know, that live here, that have lived here. Or is it, we're a student city though, you know? Tell us it's a public trail on one, in one story and then it's, it's private property in another. Tell us that this side of the tracks is private property, but that side of the tracks is fair game fine us for, for crossing the tracks for crying out loud. You know, $150 fine for crossing the tracks. They had a, we were packing up to move uh, two days ago and the train ran over his stuff on the tracks. <laughs> like just demolished it. Well, that's why I, I, was, I was one of those people that wasn't yep. aware, you know? Exactly. And then I hit the situation and thankfully, I had a friend that, that knew a place, you know? <laughs> I, I couldn't stand, I don't like the, the cluster of too many people, so. Mm. Get things right, you know. Think about us before. I know we're an institution city as well, you know. So that's that's a lot of where our housing goes as well. Yep. You know, you get somebody that if from Toronto does a crime, they come here and it's one of our institutions and their families moved here into housing. But what about people like I said are already here? It's, it's sickening. Something has to be done. I moved in with another gentleman. Was signed to an extension of a lease. Automatically inherited forty-two hundred dollars in debt that he had in back paid rent. Uh, went to tribunal, fought tooth and nail to keep the apartment. Uh, had an agreement made to pay $100 extra a month, uh, each of us, myself and the, the previous tenant. Uh, there was two payments made. He missed his third, Sophia kicked us out. We had no say in the matter. There was no, no fight in it, no nothing. So. As soon as I would, as soon as I moved out, the rent for, went from 720 to 990. Like I said, they're making money hand over fist. It's, it's sickening. You can't afford to even a bachelor apartment goes for 900 dollars now. Like it's ridiculous. You look for rooms, they're 700. Social assistance is is 700. <laughs> you know, yeah. Fix things. <clears throat> Fix things, and you won't have this. You bring that kind of attention, that's the bad, the wrong attention comes following, you know. I, I, I stand up and start. This is, this is fine. I don't, I don't mind bringing awareness, but you stand up to the bylaw officers, then the police come in. The police come in, and I'm staying in the three hots and I caught. <laughs> the squirrels drive me nuts. Could you imagine a guy three feet from you snoring and farting all the time? Nah, that's not my deal. Well, they offered all the people at Bell's Park housing. They said that everybody was in housing. That's another one too, you know, for. You, you have a, a bad situation with the landlord and you lose and you can be blacklisted. Like, I never even heard of such a thing. To be blacklisted from any rental because you dealt with a slumlord? Well, even down the tribunal, like, I had a lawyer to advocate, advocate for me and he was answering questions for, for them, you know? He was, <laughs> I was, I felt like I was being, like, scrutinized by the guy that's supposed to be representing me. It's just weird. I had hours and hours of video. Never got a chance to show it. You know, lost my apartment for $100. So he could raise the rent 230 or whatever it was. So I, not only did I lose my apartment, I lost all my property too, right? So I can't take it anywhere. The whole building was infested with roaches. <laughs> Here are some three cockroaches dancing around on the carousel in your microwave. <laughs> You know, cooking Mr. Noodles for four minutes, boiling the water. These little buggers are running around inside like it's a, like it's a carnival. <laughs> you, you have video of that, you don't get to show it. Didn't even get a chance to bring it up. Told to wait your turn that you don't get. No pictures, no video, no nothing. It's sickening. It's, it's sickening.
just a different form of government, I guess, right? They say what we what we do, and if we don't do it, then that's where we are. Last time I checked, we were Canada. You know, we don't live in a dictatorship. I, I didn't think. But you can pay when you're getting getting paid too, though. You know, I said you can pay when you're getting paid. Like they're, they're money hand over fist. Like I said, that's all it comes down to. Thanks once again to all of those involved in those interviews, from the guests themselves to the team over at Kingston Peace Council and the Cataraqua Union of Tenants who helped produce them. Now, with the final few minutes of this episode, let's take a look at what the City of Kingston is planning to do to address the needs of the over 200 people without shelter this winter. First, let's talk about the Integrated Care Hub. Established around one year ago, the Hub has vigilantly served Kingston's most vulnerable by providing shelter and a safe environment for those struggling with addiction. While the Hub has just received funding through to April, any further funding will be provided based on a, quote, political review over its effectiveness and security. To quote from the recent Global News article covering the decision to review the Hub, there is and continues to be a considerable amount of garbage way beyond what was there before. It's fairly shocking, actually said Councillor Rob Hutchinson, the councillor who proposed the review. It, that being the hub, was set up during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic when Kingston, like many municipalities, started to experience an increase in homelessness. Quote again, If the ICH is something worthwhile, I'd like them to prove it to me. Mayor Patterson, who on one hand has supported the upcoming review, has also voiced support for the hub, saying, quote, In 2020, Kingston was the only community in Ontario where the rate of opioid deaths went down. I'm quite sure the ICH had something to do with that. Another article published by the Kingston is covering the situation at the Hub has come under fire from local activists who say it and Councillor Hutchinson are, quote, only further demonizing and dehumanizing our community's most vulnerable residents. And something I myself would like to point out, on the note of garbage at least. People without a home do not have the same access to waste management services that the rest of us do. It's a very common and very misguided critique against homeless communities, and one which I sincerely hope people can better educate themselves about. The majority of us produce a lot of waste every day, and every week we get to toss it out to the curb, and when we wake up, it's gone. And that is simply not the case for people without homes or shelter. And to suggest that that is any reason to deny people services is, in my opinion, a form of cruel punishment for something they cannot control. Something which can also be applied to placing judgment on someone for simply having an addiction. And I would say to anybody who criticizes the homeless for the amount of garbage they leave around, ask yourself, what would your room, your apartment, your home, your front lawn look like if the garbage truck stopped coming to your neighborhood? The other main form of support the city is offering is something I also touched on briefly last week, uh, a plan to construct some sort of tiny homes known as sleeping cabins around Portsmouth Harbor, which will serve as a test before funding for more cabins is approved. This plan has also been widely criticized. One reason for said criticism is that Crystal Wilson, the head of Our Livable Solutions, the organization behind this plan, is a landlord, someone who profits off of others' needs for housing. And many groups have pointed to the fact that providing shelter should not be motivated by profits. It should be done in a way that puts the need of the individuals first, not anyone's bottom line. And I'll point to something that one of our anonymous guests pointed to, which is that if given the land, people would be happy to construct small shelters of their own rather than be presented with something that someone is profiting off constructing. A fair criticism to make is, why not provide funding for materials to be donated? Or better yet, as I mentioned last month, There are more than enough vacant units in Kingston to house everyone. Why not provide people access to those units? I think most people would agree that if given the option between a tiny home and an apartment, the apartment sounds way more appealing. So in conclusion, we seem to be looking at another long winter ahead of us where the majority of people on the streets will be left to fend for themselves. Some may gain access to one of these sleeping cabins, but the plans are not yet set in stone as to who exactly would be eligible. And those accessing services at the Hub will be able to continue accessing those services, provided the Hub is given the support they need to combat this outbreak. But what about everybody else? The answer? 
Well, the city just doesn't seem to have one. At least not one that actually has the full support of the community. As I record this episode, snow is falling outside. Winter isn't just coming, it's here. Temperatures have already been regularly dropping to zero and below. We need real, popular solutions to these crises. Now. And on that note, thank you all so much for listening. My name is once again Sebastian Valancourt, and you're listening to Crisis Watch Kingston. I hope you all join me next month, where I hope to bring you a special episode all about the Integrated Care Hub, the people who make it possible, and the people who need it most. for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.